0: Our teaching this morning will come from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is God's Word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented." In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous. Shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, if you've been with
1: us uh, the, in recent weeks this year, we've been in uh, the book of Genesis. And last week, we just uh, finished up Genesis chapter 11. And uh, what we're doing this year, and it'll probably take us into next year, is we're going back and forth between Genesis and Romans. And this morning, we're going to launch into Romans and Part of the reason I picked these two two books as as conversation partners is, I think I think it's safe to say that um, you know it's always it's always hard to say which books of the Bible are more important or whatever. But if you want to get a very good handle on the biblical story and the good news it speaks of, Genesis and Romans are two places that you just can't you have to go there. And in order to kind of keep us from getting Bored, though I know you never get bored. Uh, we're going to do Genesis in chunks and, and Romans in chunks. And, and I, what I hope we see in doing that is how the whole Bible really does fit together. And, and I know you maybe hear me say that a lot, but um, God wants to see and wants us to understand all of his word as his word and as important for you and for me today. So we're going to switch into Romans this morning and... Just a, a little bit of detail on Romans before uh, we look at this, this chapter. Romans uh, is one of the 13 letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. Uh, it's, hopefully that makes sense. That There are 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of them. Uh, the vast majority of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul, more so than any other uh, apostle or writer. It was written in A.D. 57 to the church, to Christians living in the city of Rome in the first century. And uh, probably he wrote it when he was in Corinth in Greece before he made his journey to Jerusalem. He had an offering that he wanted to give to the church in Jerusalem from the Gentile churches, the non-Jewish churches who were giving of their own resources to care for the uh, the suffering and fledgling church in Jerusalem. And it, Romans was written after 1st and 2 Thessalonians, Corinthians and Galatians, but then it was written before Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. So it's this massive work of the apostle that he wrote pretty much right in the middle of all of his letters. And I think it's safe to say that there, there are few books in the Scriptures that have had more of a profound impact on church history than Romans. And I was, as I was preparing and reading one of the commentators, I read uh, just made this this very striking comment that for us to open up these these this book and the words that we will read and study in this book, we we are exposing ourselves to something that could radically change you, that could turn your life upside down. And it's done that in the past. For example, Augustine, one of the the great church fathers, in, in, in the year 386, he lived in North Africa. He was converted reading this book. In reading Romans chapter 13, and the words written there, this great church father who has had untold influence on the life and history of the church comes to know Jesus and his life has radically changed. Martin Luther, in 1513, before what we now call the, the Protestant Reformation, uh, was plagued by this one verse in Psalm 31 when it says, in your righteousness, deliver me. And he was confronted with this one verse that, God, that says, God, in your righteousness, deliver me. And yet he's confronted with, but I'm not righteous. How is it possible for God to deliver me and God still be just and righteous? And it's actually Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that broke into his life. Through which God spoke to him and said, What I'm telling you here is there is a righteousness that I'm giving you. And we'll skip to see that a little bit this morning. And then a couple hundred years after Martin Luther, John Wesley in the 1700s, reading of Luther's uh, work, reading his commentary on Romans, experiences the same change. It's amazing to see how God has worked through this book in the lives of his people throughout church history. And so I'm hopeful and Something that we can pray for as a community, that God would do that among us as we work our way through this gift of of this book. As we come to verse one, notice what it says: Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. I I just want to stop there and and give us a little sense of who is this this man, Paul. Uh, Paul Uh, You can read about him in Galatians chapter 2, also in Philippians chapter 3, where he describes his past. He's a Roman citizen by birth, but he's also a Hebrew of Hebrews, he refers to himself. Uh, He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was um, excelling beyond those his own age in Judaism and his understanding of the law of God. Uh, This is no uh, fly-by-night Uh, religious person this Paul was the top of the the class he was the cream of the crop so to speak and yet here he describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus it's an incredibly humbling title he's a servant in other words what he's saying is I'm writing to you as one who I have no rights of my own I don't belong to myself My life is utterly and totally shaped and guided and moved by this Christ Jesus. I belong to him. I am his servant. But then he says, at the very same time, he's called to be an apostle. Well, that's that's a title of great authority. So at the very same time, Paul is introducing us to this idea that he is a servant of Jesus, but with great authority as an apostle. The best way to think about an apostle is what we would today call power of attorney. When you're called as an apostle, you are sent to speak on behalf of the person who sent you, as if that person were there. That's how close the connection is between the apostle and the one who sent him. He's sent to speak on behalf of Jesus. And what is he sent to do? Look at end of verse 1. Set apart for the gospel of God. And right there, that phrase, the gospel of God, is what I want you to think of as the theme of Romans. The theme of this book is the good news of God. God's good news for the world. And the rest of it unfolds what this gospel of God is. And on the one hand, it's it's the most simple thing that a child could grasp. And on the the other hand, the depths and riches that we will come across in this book are beyond our capacity to fully fathom. The gospel of God is the theme that we're going to discover and and look at over the, the weeks ahead. But in these opening verses, as you would expect, the introduction to a letter, Paul actually draws out for us some of the main central themes that we'll see again and again as we work through the book. And so what I want us to see here this morning, Paul helps us to see that this gospel of God that he set apart to proclaim, it's first of all historic. It's nothing new. It's historic. It is relational. And it's powerful. So first, let's look at the idea that this gospel of God that he is set apart to proclaim is historic. I want you to note a couple things here in verses 2 to 5. Notice first of all in verse 2 that this gospel of God, verse 2, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the, in the Holy Scriptures. That is, the Old Testament has in it this good news that this good news the gospel of God is promised beforehand here paul echoes what jesus himself says in luke 24 verse 44 when he says that the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms are written about him so first i want you to notice it is promised beforehand but second notice verse 3 what is promised what, who is it about concerning his son that is god's son And what do we learn about this son? First, we notice here that he was descended from David. That's why I had us read from 2 Samuel chapter 7 earlier. He's descended from David according to the flesh. And that term flesh we'll come back to as we work through the book. Uh, I'll comment on that in just a moment. And then it says he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This son being Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, briefly, what I want you to see here, there's a a contrast. Jesus, who is this gospel, who is the good news, was descended from David according to the flesh. That is, describing who Jesus was as a man. That his lineage is connected to that Old Testament story. But also notice that he is resurrected. He's declared to be the son of God. So he's son of David and son of God at the very same time. And he's declared to be son of God according to the spirit. That is the Holy Spirit through his resurrection. Now, what I want you to just highlight here. We're being introduced to who Jesus is we're being introduced here in the opening verses to the content of the gospel of God. It's not information. And as we'll see in a moment, it's a person. And what Paul is helping us to see here are the two stages of Jesus' ministry. When it says here he was descended from David according to the flesh, he's describing what, what theologians call his humiliation. His life here on earth. As a human being, his experience of weakness, of alienation, of suffering, of the power of sin, of the temptation and brokenness that we experience. And when he describes Jesus as declared to be the Son of God, risen from the dead, he's describing Jesus' exaltation, his power, his glory. In other words, what we see here right at the very beginning, we're being told that Jesus, the good news of God, is about Jesus who entered into life as we know it, to experience it, to take it upon himself in order to make it new. That's what we're introduced to right at the beginning. beginning. And I just want to ask the so what question. Why is any of this important right at the very beginning? Well, let me just mention a few quick reasons why. First, why does it matter that this good news, this gospel, is historic, that it's not new? Well, again, look in verse 2. God promised this beforehand. I wonder how many of you here this morning, and you would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. And yet, in the depths of your being, you are plagued with questions about, will God actually keep his promises? Is God actually good? Not just in general, but is he good towards me? Because perhaps you're in a a season in life where it doesn't feel like God keeps his promises. And you see, right at the very beginning, What we are told here about this good news is that God follows through on his promises. God promised beforehand this good news about Jesus. And he sent his son to take on flesh, to suffer, to die, and to rise again. So if you're here this morning and you're wondering, how can I know that God will keep his promises? the only answer I have for you, and it's the best answer, it is the gospel. How do I beat back the doubts and the wonderings and the questions? The only way to do that is to return back to this this promise, this gospel that was promised beforehand about this person, Jesus, given for sinners. But secondly, notice... It matters that it's historic because it's from the Old Testament that we discover the kind of people that Jesus came to save. Think about that for a moment. When Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, they didn't have our New Testament. Some of them maybe didn't even have the Old Testament. But if they had anything, it was the Old Testament. And if you go and you look at, for example, Hebrews chapter 11, where it just lists a bunch of characters from the Old Testament, or if you just spend some time flipping through the pages of the Old Testament, I wonder how many of those people we would see in our churches today. Think about this. David. He's the king. He sees a woman. He wants her. He gets her. He actually has her husband killed. And he's one of the main characters in the whole Bible. Or take Abraham. He lies about his own wife in order not to have to face perhaps death from another king because his wife is beautiful. He's kind of a scoundrel, doesn't have much courage. Or take Samson. Samson's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in in the hall of faith, if you will. He was a seedy guy. You see, the Old Testament helps us to understand what grace is. The Old Testament helps us to see who it is that Jesus came to save. It teaches us that the gospel of God is for the sick, not the healthy. But lastly, it's also about a person. It is about Jesus. In other words, this gospel of God that is historic is much more than about a teacher or an example. It's much more than about good advice or what to do. It's about who God is and what he has done for us. So it's a, it's a historic good news. And because it's about a person... What that means is it's inherently relational. Let's look at that, that it is relational. Now think for a moment with me. Paul here, he's writing to Rome. And if you can, try try to think, uh, get your history hat on for a moment. At this time, Rome is the center of the known world. It is the most powerful city known to man. It is the seat of government. It's the seat of the arts It is the seat of everything of power, of progress. But it is also full of idolatry. Just like in Athens where you had the the Parthenon and and the, the Greek gods. Well, the Romans had all of their gods and they were fine with as many gods as you wanted to have. And yet... What do we notice? There are Christians there. The church is present there. God's good news is breaking into a place like Rome. And notice, just briefly, the bond that Paul feels towards these Roman Christians. Notice in verse 8, he's thankful for them, of what God has done in their lives. Notice he prays for them. He longs to be with them. To, to share in the mutual riches of the gospel. Now, what we're going to see as we work through this letter, Paul is here is talking about the results of what this gospel does in our lives. It does essentially two things. It creates a brand new bond, a brand new relationship between sinners and God, and then a brand new relationship between sinners and one to another between Paul and these Roman Christians notice how he describes them now I want you to remember too I keep, keep hitting this Paul's a Jew saying these things about Roman Gentiles those two groups of people did not mix they were not friends and so listen how Paul describes them What has happened, who they are now in light of this good news? Notice he says, verse 7, he says, they are loved by God. To all those in Rome who are loved by God. Verse 7, the second half, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He's saying that God is now their Father, that they are his children. Verse 6, a little bit above, and the reason that they are loved by God and they are now his children, he is their father, is because they belong to Jesus. Verse 6, when he says, Including you who are called to belong to Jesus. Paul understands that who these people really are is not defined and limited by their race or their ethnicity or their background, it's defined by this good news. But then notice, not only is their relationship profoundly changed with God, his relationship with them has changed. Look in verse 13. He calls them brothers. Look again in verse 7. When he says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. He understands himself to be a part of that same family with these Gentile Roman Christians. And then verses 11 to 12, Paul wants to share in the riches of the gospel with them. He says, he longs to come to them that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Think about this. This is the Apostle Paul saying to these Roman Christians, I need you in my life. I need to be encouraged by what God is doing in your life. My being an apostle doesn't mean I'm exempt from this mutual shared life and encouragement that we have in this good news, in this gospel. Now, what's the point of all this? What I want you to think about here, what Paul is beginning to help us to see, and we'll see a whole lot more as we work through the book, that this gospel radically changes God's view of us Instead of being his enemies, we are now loved by him. We become his sons and his daughters. He identifies with us as our father. It changes God's view of us, but it also changes our view of God. Instead of wondering, what does God think of me? I can know what God thinks of me. I can be sure That despite what I think about myself or what anybody else thinks of me, that I am loved by God. That I belong to Him. But it also radically changes our view of one another. The gospel levels the playing field. And what's so amazing that we're just introduced here in this opening welcome and greeting is that it creates a whole new family, regardless of your background. But it also makes the most unlikely friends. It makes the most unlikely friends. Paul and these Roman Gentiles, brothers, sisters, family. And this is why Paul, when he says at the very end here in verse 15, I'm so eager to, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I, I love this verse. Because of of the many things we could say about it, what it does say is Christians need to hear the gospel again and again. Because if we're honest, if this gospel is, is relational at its core, that also means it's very vulnerable. It's exposing. It's often perhaps hard to see and to experience in the depths of your being. Which is why he wants to preach the gospel again to them. That not only they would come to know it and experience it, but that others there in Rome and beyond Rome would come to know it. And the reason why is because it's powerful. This gospel is historic, it's relational, and it's powerful. Look in verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, I have to confess, as a, as a pastor, I come to this verse, and it's really hard to not feel overwhelmed because there are a few verses more, more important than these two. That the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What does that mean? What that means is, It is this message concerning God's Son. That is where you experience and discover the power of God. We don't experience the power of God in our good intentions, in our religious zeal. We experience the power of God by believing the gospel receiving this message as true for me for you that if you want to see and know what does what is the power of god feel like what does it look like it comes by believing this good news this message and it is received by faith believing now why is that important well, because faith is the relinquishment of trusting in yourself. Faith means that the gospel is for anyone who believes. And this means that the good news is available to everyone, no matter who you are or where you're from, because it can't be earned, it can only be received. Now, why is it so powerful? Look in verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. Now what does Paul mean here by this, this idea of righteousness of God? Uh, there, there are at least three options. One option that Paul means by the righteousness here is it's describing who God is in his character, that he is a righteous God. And that's true. Everything he does is just and right and true. Another way that this righteousness can be understood is that it describes God's activity. That when he acts, he acts to rescue. That he acts justly and righteously towards us. But there's a third way in which this term can be understood. And it is the idea that this righteousness is a divine accomplishment. Or achievement. In other words, it's a gift that he freely gives. And as we'll see, it's that third way of understanding it that is most central in this passage and in this book. Even though the other two are are necessary for it, that God must be righteous and act righteously in order for us to receive the gift of righteousness. John Stott puts it like this, the righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by giving to them a righteousness which is not their own, but his. Now, let me try to give you an image to think about this. If we had to kind of bring the the idea of righteousness into our everyday experience, think of it as a validating performance record. That your righteousness is a validating performance record. It is a record that validates you. That says you are either okay or you're not okay. And on the basis of that validating performance record, certain opportunities may open up to you. Or certain opportunities may be be, uh, forbidden from you. Or closed off from you. And what we're being told here is there is a righteousness in the gospel that is contrasted with our unrighteousness, our validating performance record that you don't want anybody to see. But it's also contrasted with our righteousness. That is, our validating performance record that we do want everyone to see, that we'd be proud of. What Paul is saying here is that there is a righteousness that God freely gives that you need that's different than both your unrighteousness and your righteousness. That what we need is a divine righteousness that is a gift that we can't earn, that's given through faith. Now, as we come to the end of this passage... As a way of introducing this this past this this book, what what I want to get you to think about is why why should you care about this gospel of God, that it's historic and relational and powerful? Notice with me at the beginning of verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I don't want to make this say more than it does but I do want to linger with you on this by way of of conclusion. Paul here is an apostle. He was a Jew who was zealous for God's law and Jesus broke into his life and his life went the opposite direction that it was going in. In other words, there would be plenty of occasion for him to be ridiculed. Uh, In fact, he was persecuted. Persecuted. Uh, rejected for this gospel. And yet he says, but I am not ashamed. And what I want you to think about, why you should care is the power of the gospel can lead you to say, I am not ashamed. In other words, Jesus died on the cross to take all your guilt and shame. All of it. And so when you hear him say, this righteousness is received by faith, here's the question I want you to wrestle with. If it's true that Jesus came to give you his righteousness, his perfect validating performance record, to give that to you, and then to take all your guilt and shame, Will you give it to him? See, faith is giving to Jesus your shame, your guilt. Faith is letting him bear it, letting him take it. Think of it this way. Unbelief is not letting Jesus do what he said he wanted to do and he came to do for sinners like you and me. Let him give you the approval of the only one whose opinion matters. Think about that. He came to bear your sin and guilt, your shame. This righteousness is what can enable you to say, I am not ashamed. This good news is so powerful and so good. I know I am loved by God, that he is my father that I have a family, that I belong. And there is no amount of my successes or my failures that can change that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we enter into this book and discover the depths and the riches of this gospel that you have accomplished and given, we ask that you would help us. That you would help us to to believe it. That you would give us faith to lean on you, to cast our cares upon you, to receive from you the promises and the gift of Jesus and all of his righteousness. Father, help us to understand what that means, to experience it in the depths of our beings, and help us to share it with one another as sinners saved by grace. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.